President and venal houseplant Joe Biden traveled to the Middle East this week to meet with Arab leaders who refused to see him. And so instead, he sat in his hotel room throwing playing cards into a hat. While the president was away, the United States government was run by a shadowy cabal of far left authoritarians who pretended Joe Biden was running things. So no change there. Houseplant Biden did meet with soon-to-be former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to personally relay his message that Israel should utterly destroy Hamas, just don't hurt anybody. To honor their United States allies, Israeli dignitaries performed the ancient Jewish ritual of nodding politely while the powerful Goyim are speaking before sidling quietly out of the room to go kill their enemies. Terrorist leaders, meanwhile, have declared today a day of unprecedented anger, to be followed by a day of unbridled nastiness, then a day of unbelievable aggravation and irritability, after which they'll return to normal, simply slaughtering innocent people as the opportunity presents itself. Here in the United States, Shadow President Barack Obama reacted to the greatest atrocity committed against the Jews since Auschwitz by forcefully sort of objecting to it two and a half days later. To those who believed his response was a detestable signal to White House staffers not to stand too close to the rug that would soon be pulled out from under the feet of the Israelis, an Obama spokesman assured the media that the shadow president is working for peace behind the scenes by helping to supply Iran with nuclear weapons so they can join the community of nations strapped with nuclear weapons. FBI Director Christopher Babyface Ray announced that the homeland terrorist threat level has risen from red to holy crap. We've let a flood of illegal immigrants into the country and have no idea who they are or where they're hiding. Ray said the Bureau would now focus their attention on trying not to giggle when they uselessly warn Americans to duck and cover during the next inevitable jihadi attack. Ray says this might mean withdrawing some agents from their important work of intimidating parents who are trying to protect their children from the teachers union and other sexual deviants. The teachers union said they would help out by distributing a coloring book entitled Stranger Danger, which will tell children that if their parents drive up and offer them a lift, they should run to the nearest teacher, jump into his windowless white van and disappear forever. On campuses around the country, leftist groups are scrambling to rebrand themselves now that they realize they actually support fascism and genocidal murder. At Harvard, for instance, the Students' Palestine Solidarity Group has unveiled their new protest chant, Donald Trump is literally Hitler, so let's kill the Jews. The UC Berkeley group Feminists for Hamas has their new manifesto, which begins, quote, We know that feminists supporting violently patriarchal Islamists makes absolutely no sense, but we're just ditzy girls and can get away with this stuff because we're cute and we smell good, unquote. And of course, LGBTQ plus Palestine supporters have developed their new slogan, Queers for Palestine, moving upward from brainless to headless. At Dartmouth, the administration reacted to student support for anti-Semitic mass murder by releasing a statement saying, quote, frankly, we wish we'd known we were Nazis sooner because it's so much easier to spell than decolonization, unquote. As the fighting in Gaza continues, American military experts are using artificial intelligence to map out the future of various scenarios. For instance, one prediction from military AI reads, quote, I looked at the data and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and everyone hid themselves, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come, unquote. The AI also predicted that Charity Lawson will overcome the heartache of her breakup with Zach Shawcross and find lasting love on this season of Bachelorette. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. All right, we are back laughing our way through Armageddon. So here to start the a day of, you know, complete dissolution of our world order uh, is some actual good news. I'm going to talk today about The House of Love and Death, my new novel, not to tell you why you should buy it, uh, but why I wrote it. Uh, but you should buy it. 
and uh, you should buy it. It will be avail- it'll be available soon. Amazon doesn't really care about pub dates. Pub date is October 31st, but buy it now. It, it helps the book, uh, and you can pre-order the audio book as well. If you want a signed copy, go to the Mysterious Bookshop web- website, Mysterious Bookshop. Hit the picture of the book, and you can order a signed copy there. And on November 6th, I will be there at 6 p.m. Eastern. November 6th, 6 p.m. Eastern, the Mysterious Bookshop in Lower Manhattan. And come say hello. I always love meeting you, so... Uh, you know, drop in and uh, and you can check the website Mysterious Bookshop for details. Uh, you also want to subscribe to the Andrew Claven YouTube channel, my personal YouTube channel. Uh, you will get all kinds of stuff there. The interviews that I do every week, you can get those wherever you get your podcast. But they're also, if you want to watch them, they're also up on YouTube. Last week, I interviewed Andrew Hyatt, who directed The Blind. Uh, this upcoming week, uh, this upcoming Wednesday. I will be talking to border security expert Laura Reese about the money Biden just asked for to help flood the border with illegals. Uh, You'll also get exclusive content, which we will deliver personally uh, to your home. We will wrap it in anti-Semitic slurs so no one will know you're a conservative. And if you leave a comment and the comment is sufficiently cruel to minorities and full of colonial assumptions, we'll read it here because that's what we're into. Today's comment comes from flame-broiled squirrel, uh, which uh, tastes good anyway, says the end must be getting closer. The quality and hilarity of Clavin's monologue seems to be inversely proportionate to the state of the world, and this week's was epic. I I do know what you mean. I have to say I wrote today's uh, opening on an airplane and was cracking up while I was writing it. Suddenly thought to myself, gee, I hope nobody's looking over my shoulder to find out what it is I'm laughing about. Uh, Let us get started with the bad news, which is the world is falling apart. In today's episode, War and Culture War. Usually I start with the news and then get to the broader cultural outlook, but today I'm going to reverse that because I think we need to come into the news with a deeper understanding than we usually have, and at least an understanding that you won't get anywhere else, I'm pretty sure. I think it's pretty clear that for the moment anyway, the fun part of history is over. The fun part where we call Hillary Clinton a communist and they call Trump literally Hitler. And we all know that that's not really true. That's overstating the case. It's just a bunch of exaggerated political talk. But now that kind of hilarity is over and evil is rising. And as I say, I always hate to use the word evil in talking about politics, because if you call your opponent evil, you have nowhere to go when actual evil shows up. But this has been growing for a while. I mean, you can't separate what's happening from the sexual butchery of children, uh, the open calls for abortion up to and beyond the moment of birth, uh, the legal persecution of political opponents and innocent parents who are trying to protect their children. The Jew hatred on campus and in Congress and in the press is no surprise. I've always said this. It's not that Jew hatred is the most evil thing ever. It is that anti-Semitism is the devil's flagpole. I talked about this all through the last episode. If you want to go back and take a look at that, the Jews and the Christians who have been grafted on to the promise to the Jews are the theater where God plays out his relationship with mankind. You do not have to believe in God to understand that's true. You just have to know that God is in our consciousness, whether he's real or not, he's there, and that we associate him with the Jews and the Christians who are now part of the uh, chosen people. So when they're attacked, it's a sign that people are attacking God, whether God in his heaven or God in his in our minds. And when we see these brainless children on campus calling for violence against the Jews, we know that something really bad is happening in our country. There's just no question about this as far as I'm concerned. Now, there's something about evil I don't like. It's it's hard for me to put my finger on it exactly, but I, I think it's the evil. I think that's the part of evil I don't like. And so I want to talk about our response because I don't see the point in just constantly airing outrage and grief and trying to get you to see because I think the people who need to see do see. And I want to explain that a little bit more. I want to talk about our response, our personal response, our cultural response, our political response. And in some ways, I have to say, I think this is going to be a show for men. I hope ladies will will listen. But as I've often said, the future is always male. Uh, if women are strong and happy and free and men are useless and miserable, the future will be hellish chaos in which women will eventually be miserable too. Uh, whereas if we understand 
Our manhood, if we live manhood well and joyfully, the future will include women who are happy and free as well. Women create the future, but men are the future. So in a time of rising evil, no matter who we are, I don't care if you're a senator or a movie star or the guy who cleans the bathrooms at the airport, it really does not matter what your role in life is, whether you're a a, a so-called important person or a celebrity or an intellectual or an ordinary guy, it doesn't matter. This is a moment when we need every man who will be extraordinary to be extraordinary. I want to talk about what that means. So let's get started with chapter one, how to be a tough guy. Policy Genius makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies and find your lowest price. Their licensed agents work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can just trust their guidance. There are no added fees and your personal information is kept private. You want to have life insurance. I know you don't want to think about the things that you need it for, but you do need it for those things. And it's super satisfying to check life insurance off your to-do list. A good life insurance plan can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you, your family will have a safety net to cover mortgage payments, college costs, or other expenses. Life insurance through your workplace may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as we age, now is the time to buy. Policy Genius makes the process so much easier. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Go to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. So let me tell you why and how I became a crime writer. I know I've told parts of this story before, but I only myself have realized very recently what this means to what I've been saying to you over these last few weeks and what I've been saying to myself and the work I've been doing on the Cameron Winter novels, including this new one, The House of Love and Death. Uh, As I started to come to manhood, you know, 14 or 15, I looked around me and I found that I had very few role models in my life that I wanted to emulate, very few ways to learn how to be a man. And the nearest place I found that men I admired were in novels and in movies. The men I admired were tough guys. They were hard men who spoke very bluntly and told the truth in gruff-sounding voices without any kind of soft soap. And I found these men in novels by Ernest Hemingway and tough guy detective stories by guys like Dashiell Hammett and Mickey Spillane and Raymond Chandler. And I saw them on the screen played by actors like Humphrey Bogart and John Wayne. But after a while, I began to notice something about some of these tough guys or some of the tough guy characters that the actors played that even though their appearance and presentation was incredibly cool and appealing to me, a way I wanted to act, sometimes their philosophy, the philosophy they represented and their actual behavior was not all that admirable. And a perfect example is my favorite movie. And it's my favorite movie because it is the best movie ever made, uh, which is Casablanca. And anyone who says it's something else, especially if they say it's Citizen Kane, you know immediately that they're a poser because no one on earth has ever enjoyed Citizen Kane more than Casablanca. There must be another dozen films that come before it. In fact, I would say a lot more than that. But there's only one best movie, and it's Casablanca. And for those of you who bizarrely have never seen it, Humphrey Bogart plays a guy who runs a cafe in Casablanca during World War II before the Americans have gotten into it. Uh, The Casablanca at that point is run by the Vichy French, who are the French who have been conquered by and are collaborating with the Nazis. And Bogart is there because he's had his heart broken when the lady played by Ingrid Bergman left him for her husband, who was a resistance fighter. So Bogart now is is just absolutely out of everything. He cynically stays out of all of politics until the beautiful Ingrid Bergman shows up with her husband in his cafe in Casablanca. His reaction is one of the most famous, must be one of the five or ten most famous scenes in all of movies. Here's just a little bit of it. Cut one. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. What's that you're playing? Oh, just a little something on my own. Oh, stop it. You know what I want to hear. No, I don't. 
played it for her, he played it for me. Well, I don't think I can remember. If she can stand it, I can. Play it. Yes, boss. So where we get the phrase, play it again, Sam, which he never says. But no one is cooler than Humphrey Bogart. No one has ever been cooler or will ever be cooler than Humphrey Bogart. No one was more beautiful than Ingrid Bergman. Nothing's more romantic than a love story set in a war zone. But when I really thought about this as a kid, I'm a kid looking for men to admire. I thought, you know, Bogart isn't really very tough in this story. His girlfriend dumped him, and because his girlfriend dumped him, he's refusing to fight in World War II. I mean, it's Ingrid Bergman, I get that, but it's World War II. I mean, in the end, a woman is only a woman, but how often do you get a chance to kill actual Nazis, right? It doesn't come along that often. I wanted a hero who was tougher than that. I wanted a hero who didn't just look cool and talk tough, who was actually a tough guy. And once I began to consider the actual actions and philosophies of a lot of the tough guys I admired, uh, Mike Hammer in the Mickey Spillane novels and Sam Spade in the Maltese Falcon, I began to look beyond the way they sounded and behaved, which was cool and tough, to what they actually thought and did. You know, when I dismiss a guy like Andrew Tate and people write to me and say, no, Tate is good. It's not that I don't understand Andrew Tate's appeal. I do, but I can't break this habit of looking beyond the sound and appearance of people to their underlying behavior and philosophy to see if they are really tough, if they are really doing something with their life that is tough to do. And for me, I found the perfect mix of tough attitude and righteous action in Philip Marlowe, the hero of Raymond Chandler's tough guy detective stories. That's what made me a mystery writer. I turned into a mystery writer. I was fated to become a mystery writer when I read the opening of Chandler's first novel, The Big Sleep. In the opening, Marlowe walks up to the mansion of his rich client And I'll read you just a little passage from this. I'll try to read it in a a tough voice. He says, Over the entrance doors, which would have let in a troop of Indian elephants, there was a broad stained glass panel showing a knight in dark armor rescuing a lady who was tied to a tree and didn't have any clothes on but some very long and convenient hair. The knight had pushed the visor of his helmet back to be sociable, and he was fiddling with the knots on the ropes that tied the lady to the tree and not getting anywhere. I stood there and thought that if I lived in the house, I would sooner or later have to climb up there and help him. He didn't seem to be really trying. See, Marlowe is a shabby working stiff. He's a private detective. He doesn't make a lot of money. But on the inside, He's a knight in shining shining armor. He lives in a grimy and corrupt modern Los Angeles, but he carries inside himself the best ideal of manhood that his culture created, which is the ideal of chivalry. Chandler uh, wrote an essay about Philip Marlowe in which he said, Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He has to move. That's where we get the phrase mean streets. He has to move through meanness and corruption and smallness and evil, but inside himself, he has to keep that ideal of manhood alive, of noble manhood alive. That is tough. Now, here's the important point, all right? What we're dealing with now is the end of the modern era. We've had modernism, we've had postmodernism, post-postmodernism. We're coming to an end of that era. The modern era is said to begin with the novel Don Quixote. Some people say that's the first modern novel. And it's a modern novel because it is a satire on the ideas that are present in society. It's a novel about novels. Don Quixote is a guy who's read so many novels about knights that he believes he is living in a knight King Arthur type story, right? And he makes a fool of himself by acting like a knight in a world where knighthood is a fantasy. He thinks windmills are dragons that he has to fight with his lance. He thinks prostitutes are high-born ladies that he should treat, you know, from afar. He should love chastely. He's nuts, right? Now, Philip Marlowe makes himself a hero by doing almost the same thing, by acting like a knight in a world where knighthood is a fantasy. The difference between Don Quixote and Philip Marlowe is the difference between ideology and ideal. Don Quixote is lost in a dream of 
of chivalry, and he wants the world to play along. He thinks the world is the world of knighthood, and he is a knight in a knightly world. Marlowe doesn't think that at all. He knows the world is crap. He knows it's corrupt. He knows it's evil and wicked. And he knows he's going to get the crap kicked out of him for acting like a knight. And he decides to do it anyway. He's a realist who has decided to live his ideal self as much as possible. And he completely understands the consequences. And that was the man that I wanted to be. I wanted to say, screw modernity, screw feminism. This is why I didn't fight feminism. I never fought feminism. I just ignored it. I just ignored it in my life. I ignored it in other people. I treated women like ladies. I opened doors even when women screamed at me. I didn't react to it. I just ignored it. I ignored the corruption. I just was who I wanted to be. I wanted to be very clear-headed about the world and yet behave as I thought a man should behave, even if it meant getting the crap kicked out of me, which metaphorically speaking, it sometimes did. I sometimes got the crap well and truly kicked out of me in terms of my career, in terms of my finances, sometimes in terms of my face. Time being what it is, I have now reached what is inevitably the final stage of my career. And when you come to the last road, the, fi- the, the, the final road of your career, you want to use your sharpened talent, which theoretically should be at its height, and you want to make a final statement about what you've learned. I invented the novels that I'm writing now, and again, I've only sort of fully realized this recently. These Cameron Winter novels, and the new one, Please Go By, The House of Love and Death, He is a man, Cameron Winter is a man who has seen and experienced and been part of the worst of modern history, but he's decided to become a poetry professor as the Republic is falling down around him. That's the setting of the stories. The Republic is collapsing, but he has committed himself to the old Western values. In his mind, in his heart, it is always around 1800. He knows those values are not going to help him live well. He knows those values are going to cost him, but he has decided to embody them despite the fact it leads to the cross because Philip Marlowe is doing a Christly thing. He is acting in such a way that will get him crucified. And so, in some ways, is Cameron Winter. We are living in a country that is far more corrupt than Chandler's Los Angeles ever was. I'm writing these novels. I am writing these novels to explain to myself and to you what it means to be a good man in a time of crisis, in a time of collapse, and in a time of evil. And here's why I think it matters that I'm doing this. You have to notice something, that as evil is rising, as our children are being butchered to change their sex in a fantasy of of changed sex, as as abortion uh, goes from safe, legal, and rare to shout your abortion and commit it after the baby is born, when Our universities are justifying the ugliest violence as long as it's against Jews and the Jew hatred is everywhere, the hatred of womanhood is everywhere, the butchery of children, all of the sick sexual stuff. There's something else that's going on. Art has died. I've mentioned this before. The New York Times, I always tell you, you get the news here first. The New York Times is now writing about this. Our culture has come to an almost complete standstill. Art has died and evil has is rising, and those two things are related, and it has to do with Don Quixote and Philip Marlowe, and I'm about to explain why. Are you struggling to sleep at night? I've given up the struggle, but did you know that poor sleep can cause weight gain, mood issues, poor mental health, and lower productivity? Just look at me. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and performance. Having a consistent nighttime routine is non-negotiable. If you're struggling with sleep, you need to check out Beam. Beam is designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Beam's Dream Powder contains a powerful, all-natural blend of ingredients, including magnesium L-theanine. Beam sent some Dream Powder down to the studio for my team to try, and they've been asleep ever since. I have a lot of terrible sleepers, but they're out like a light. I'm telling you, unlike regular sleeping pills that will make you wake up feeling groggy, Beam helps you wake up ready to go. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. Today, my listeners can get a special discount on Beam's delicious Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like cinnamon cocoa and chocolate peanut butter. Better sleep has never tasted better. If you want to try Beam's best-selling Dream Powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time at shop 
shopbeam.com slash Claven. Be sure to use code Claven at checkout. That's shop, B-E-A-M dot com slash Claven and use code Claven for up to 40% off. You don't want to lie awake thinking, how, how, oh, how do I spell Claven? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Now go get yourself some beam. Chapter two, the death of art. Now, I'm going to get to Biden's speech and what we should do in the Middle East and all these stuff, all this stuff. But first, let me just cover two other stories that happened. Palestinian terrorists accidentally dropped one of their own missiles in the parking lot of a hospital, uh, and they uh, killed like 100 people. It's quite terrible. They announced that Israelis shelled the hospital and killing hundreds and hundreds, overstating the number of people who were killed. And the media basically ran with it. The New York Times, a former newspaper, NBC, the BBC, they immediately went with reports that were effectively coming out of a terrorist organization, Hamas, because if you can't trust people who behead babies, you would have to trust the Jews, and you certainly wouldn't want to do that. Now, the Israelis produced evidence from Al Jazeera and intercepted communications proving that Hamas was lying, and the press reluctantly agreed to pick up the story but not Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib is a vampire, by the way. I, I posted about, I said, don't tell me that's dehumanizing language because she's a vampire. You can attack me when I devampirize her, then that would be more appropriate. But even after it's proved the Hamas story was a lie, she's making speeches like this one, cut three. Continue to watch people think it's okay to bomb a hospital with children. You know what's so hard sometimes is watching those videos and and the people telling the kids don't cry and like let them cry. And they're shaking and somebody you know this, they keep telling them not to cry in Arabic. They do, they can cry, I can cry, we all can cry. If we're not crying, something is wrong. Now, to be fair, she did. It was bright daylight, so she had to return to her coffin right after that. But the thing is, she was doing it. She kept the accusations up on X. She hasn't removed them. There are protests throughout the Middle East, parts of Europe, based on the lie, not on the truth. Now, you could hear her crying. Maybe that's a performance, but maybe not. Maybe she believes the lie. She knows it's a lie, but that may, it doesn't stop her from believing the lie. American students are calling for violence, chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free, which means let's kill six million Jews. So the people who call us literally Nazis because we want to follow the Constitution are literally Nazis. But let's just move to the second part of the story, which is three students at NYU who are caught on video tearing down the posters of the hostages who are being held by Hamas. They were tearing down the pictures of these people who have been kidnapped and are being held and probably treated terrible, very terribly. One of them apologized afterwards, but even she had this kind of, she was identified in docs, but, but she had this kind of babble of ideology. She said, I found it increasingly difficult to know my place as a biracial brown woman, especially during these highly volatile times. <laughs> you know, why, why her place is any different than anybody else? I don't know. But the man uh, who was her accomplice hit his face. He's not been found. My point is here is that so many good people, terrific people, are showing pictures of atrocities. Friends of mine in the media are showing the pictures of the atrocities committed by Hamas. They're saying, look, look at this, look at this. And they keep telling, why don't you see? Why don't you see? And they don't understand. They hate the truth, these people. The truth is not what they're about. They believe the lie just like Don Quixote. They have an ideology an ideology, an idea of what the world is like, not an idea of who they should be. They're not suffering for an ideal like Philip Marlowe. They're not saying, I will do the good thing whether the world likes it or not. They are saying the world is a certain way and nothing is going, I can get hit on the head by a windmill and I'm still going to say it's a dragon. They have an ideology, just like the transgenderists. There's no evidence in any way that, you know, you can change your sex, but they're not only going to believe it, they're going to silence you if you tell them it's not true, just like the Marxists. They can destroy society after society, but still they're going to insist that this is the way the world works. They mean 
to riot and cry over something that didn't happen. They mean to justify the beheading of babies and the rapes of women because that is what their ideology tells them is good, right? The truth, you put the truth in front of them and it only enrages them. It enrages them because you've interrupted the dream of their ideology, which is greater and better than the truth. This ideology is called decolonization, specifically, and and I said before last week that Israel is not a colonial country, but that doesn't matter. Decolonization is a violent movement from its very start. Its Bible, which is taught in colleges, is a book called The Wretched of the Earth by a Marxist named Franz Fanon, who grew up in the French colony of Martinique. I'll read you a quote. And some of this I am uh, taking from a, an article by a seminary student named Stephen Peter in the, the magazine First Things. But this is a quote. From the wretched of the earth, decolonization is always a violent phenomenon. Violence frees the native from his inferiority complex and from his despair and inaction. It makes him fearless and restores his self-respect. And, and the author says, according to Fanon, the essence of decolonization's inversions or order might be found in the well-known words, the last shall be first and the first last. Decolonization is the putting into practice in this sentence, says Fanon, the word of our Lord must be instituted by searing bullets and bloodstained knives. In other words, it's the inversion of Christianity as material philosophy always ends up being the inversion, the exact opposite of Christianity. This attachment to lies, the celebration of violence, the descent into the ugliest, most demonic violence, and then the tears and self-pity when, when suddenly people fight back. They, what, what are they doing? Why are they fighting back against you, beheading their children? What, what is wrong with you? How could that possibly happen? Oh, the tears, the tears, even though they dropped the bomb on themselves, the tears, it's because it's all being seen through this film of a dream, which is ideology. You know, there is, uh, at the same time, so at the same time as this, at the same time as this, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine by art critic Jason Farrago, Why Culture Has Come to a Standstill. Okay, so at the same time, Rashida Tlaib is sobbing over something that did not happen the way she says it happened. At the same time, these students are tearing down pictures that they don't deny are the truth, that they just don't want to be seen in the same way that, you know, Corinne Jean-Pierre says the border is secure and the head of Homeland Security says the border is secure. It, it, it's the lie they believe in. It's the lie they believe in. So here's an article in the New York Times, Why Culture Has Come to a Standstill. And again, as I said, you've been hearing this from me for probably about a year, but the New York Times has caught up. And Jason Farrago, who, by the way, I've asked to come on the show. I don't know if he will, but I've asked him to come on. To pay attention to culture in 2023 is to be belted into some glacially slow Ferris wheel cycling through remakes and pastiches with nowhere to go but around. The suspicion gnaws at me that we live in a time and place whose culture seems likely to be forgotten. Now, obviously, he hasn't read The House of Love and Death, or he would know there were bright spots, but still. What he concludes is that modernism was based on change and progress. It elevated change and progress, and that progress has come to an end. He says, we have every ability to live in a culture of beauty, insight, surprise, if we could just accept that we're no longer modern and have not been for a while, that somewhere in the push and pull of digital homogeneity and political stasis, we entered a new phase of history. Now, I agree, the thought, the idea that was modernism and postmodernism and all the rest, post-postmodernism, has come to an end. And if I could sum up what that modernist thought is, it would be this. What if there's no God and every conviction of the human heart is a randomly evolved accident with no attachment to any moral truth? What if everything we believe is a construct that can be deconstructed in order to restore power to the powerless and to build something new and beautiful? Don Quixote was so deceived in the world, maybe Jesus was too. Maybe gender is an illusion. Maybe reality itself is all a construct that can, that can be reconstructed in other ways. Decolonization is just one bloody form of that thought. But every form of that thought will ultimately be bloody because it isn't true. And once you have to shape the world into your idea of what the world should be, you're going to have to start killing people. Art. The reason art has come to a standstill at the same reason this evil ideology of transgenderism and, and queering children and killing Jews and decolonization and destroying our culture by letting everybody come up through the border. The reason 
art has died at the same time as evil is rising is that art is the opposite of ideology. This is why conservatives don't like it either. Art will not do what you want it to do. Art is like life. Art is a reflection of life. It is an illumination of life as lived by human beings. That's why they have to keep editing and and censoring James Bond and P.G. Woodhouse and all these great writers, Agatha Christie. They have to censor them because art just gives you life in its moment. It's an experience. Art is an experience. You don't read to be lectured at. I don't write novels to lecture at you. I write novels to explore life, to show you life as one person with skill and talent who has worked hard to hone his talent can conceive it and can can communicate it. The living experience is the important thing. Each true interpretation of life, there are many different true interpretations, sometimes clashing true interpretations of life, but each one of them gets you closer to the full experience, and each false experience takes you into a dream world where ultimately good is bad and right is wrong and evil is, you know, is, and evil is moral. Ideology narrows the focus of the mind so that it can, can't see life in all its confusing variety. It's a form of idolatry. I, it's, ideology is a way of taking your ideas and making idols out of them so that they replace the reality, just like a statue replaces God. You know, I had lunch the other day with a, uh, a guy, a French philosopher named Pascal uh, Bruckner, He had an article recently in City Journal called The Conquest of Art, saying that ideology was triumphing over art, that art was being censored in the name of ideology. And here's what he said. He said, just what uh, characterizes, what characterizes an artistic creation, a painting, a symphony, or a novel? These are inventions. They probe into the unknown of symbols, colors, sounds. They celebrate the beauty of the world. They question overturn, console, or blast open. On the other hand, a political doctrine or religious or moral dogma is by nature fixed and tends to assume control over whatever challenges its, anything it challenges its preeminence. Ideology forbids as much as it obligates. Sectarian thinkers love neither artistic peaks nor originality, only the drabness of the docile herd. Ideology and art are in opposition to one another, and you cannot create art when ideology uh, or idolatry, because it's the same thing, is triumphant. Here's another quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I used this in a speech not long ago. To do evil, a human being must first of all believe that what he's doing is good, or else that it's a well-considered act in conformity with natural law. Fortunately, it is in the nature of the human being to seek a justification for his actions. Ideology, that is what gives the evil doing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. I'm evil because I'm bringing equity. I'm evil because I'm freeing Palestine. I'm evil because I'm decolonizing the world. So it's good. So the evil is good. Ideas become ideology when we detach them from life, when we try to dominate life with our ideas. Art brings us back to life. If it's great art, it will bring us back to seeing life. And that makes you Philip Marlowe instead of Stalin or Rashida Tlaib. You have to, you know, you have an ideal of what a man should be, of what a person should be, of what a nation should be, where all men are created equal, where all men are treated the same. You have an ideal of that, but you understand that you are coming to a world where all men are not created equal, where all men are not treated the same, where wealth talks, money talks. You understand that. You understand you're fighting against that or in dialogue with the real world. You believe in chivalry, but you know the world is not a place for knights. You believe in Christ, but you have to be willing to take up the cross because that's the way people reacted to Christ. Or, you know, take up the cross or get demonetized on YouTube, whatever comes first. You're in an interchange with truth, which is why lies, men can become women and redistributing wealth will bring about equality. Lies are so destructive and why art leads people into a living interchange with reality. It's the, it's the antidote to idolatry. It's no coincidence that culture has come to a halt and evil is rising at the same time. Ideology is idolatry. Life, l'chaim, is the word of God, is the creation of God, which is far vaster than any idea we have can comprehend. So we've reached the ground floor of the modern idea. I've been saying this again for over a year now. We have reached the ground floor of the modern idea, that idea that there might be no God and everything is a construct. It's time to ask ourselves old questions in new ways. 
Are you a few years, or as in my case, centuries out of school and wondering what the heck did I even learn and what was the point? You might even be thinking, I don't have the time to learn anything new. If that's you, you're not alone and it's not too late. My friends at Hillsdale College are offering more than 40 free online courses. Learn about the works of C.S. Lewis, the rise and fall of the Roman Republic, or the history of the ancient Christian church with Hillsdale College's online courses. If you're not sure where to start, check out American Citizenship and its decline with Victor Davis Hanson. In this eight-lecture course, Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threat it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state and the rise of globalist organizations. The course is self-paced so that you can start wherever and whenever you like. Start your free course of American citizenship and its decline with Victor Davis Hanson. Today, go to hillsdale.edu slash Clavin to enroll. There's no cost. It's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash Clavin to enroll. hillsdale.edu slash Clavin. I know you're thinking, how do I spell edu? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. All right, chapter three, America Third. I want to take a look at the situation that we're in, America's foreign policy dilemmas and questions and choices. So we'll take a look at Biden's speech the other day after he visited Israel. Uh, just to give you my perspective first, I'm America Third. Some people are America First. I, I put God first. You know, if America wants me to go against Christ, I will side with Christ over America. I put my family uh, second. If ever I had to protect my family from America, like, you know, Sigmund Freud had to leave Vienna and Thomas Mann had to leave Germany, you know, I, I would I would do that. I would leave to protect my family. But when it comes, because America wouldn't be America anymore if that were true. When it comes to a nation, to nations, however, I'm America only. America is the only country I really care about because it's my country, it's my mother country, and I think it has, was a great country and has a capacity to be a great country again. So I listened to Biden's speech and here's about the Middle East and, and other things about, this is his national security speech from the Oval Office. Here's what he said, cut four. You know, uh, years ago I asked the Secretary of State when he and I were working in the Senate to write something for me and he said, uh, he wrote a line that uh, I think is appropriate. He said, uh, it's not, we lead, uh, not just, uh, well, I won't go into it. I'll wait later. I'm taking too much time. <laughs> All right. That wasn't really, I just wanted to make the point before we got to his actual speech that the man is a walking mashed potato. Here's his real speech. I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going. And the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. So that's his justification for asking for over $100 billion. But I, I know the, the important question is, what the hell happened to his chin? Why does his chin look so funny? I don't know. He's asking for $100 billion. Mostly, he's talking about Ukraine. He's trying to link, he thinks Ukraine makes him look better than Israel. And, you know, there's been this, this urge among even conservative journalists, even really good journalists like Rick Hume and Brett Stevens over the New York Times, to celebrate Biden, as if I think they want to encourage him to do what's right by Israel. And so, they, you know, Brit Hume, I think, said this is one of his great speeches. And Brett Stevens called his other speech, which was almost unintelligible, you know, his finest hour. No, absolutely not. On the other hand, you have conservatives who are screaming and yelling that he's not doing, you know, going against Iran, which I, we're not going to go to war with Iran, let's face it. So I, I'm not sure that that's what he should be talking about. But the real problem to me is... It doesn't matter how much money we spend. We are here because of Biden, Obama, Biden and Obama's actions and inactions. Here's here's Walter Russell Mead, who's a very fine observer of the the foreign 
policy scene and a guy who believes in the American world order. And he says, why are so many actors challenging American power in so many parts of the world? Because the U.S. is losing its power to deter, emboldened by American failures to respond effectively as when Mr. Putin invaded Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2014, when President Obama failed to enforce his red line in Syria, or when China built and militarized artificial islands in the South China Sea, our adversaries gradually lost their inhibitions and dared to challenge us more directly in more damaging ways. Now, people keep calling this weakness, American weakness, but this is my point. That's not true. This is Obama and Biden's ideology, decolonization, fundamentally transforming America. They mean this. They mean this. They think the world is going to do what they tell it to do instead of them reacting to the world in the best way and best and most moral way possible. It's like the collapse of our cities because George Soros says too many colored people go to prison without considering who's committing the crime. Are they going to prison for fun or are they going to prison because they commit crime? They want to impose their fantasy of justice and equity and saving the climate on a world that has a reality of its own. Their ideology starts to make evil seem good. It's fine for people to come pouring into the border when terrorists are everywhere. It is fine to help Iran when Iran is funding terror everywhere. So, you know, I don't think America can hold the world together, but I don't think it can sit back while the world falls apart either. I think the uh, isolationists and the neoconservatives are both acting like children. I, I really do. I think we are the, pa- the best country with the most power in the world. And I think that gives us responsibilities to kind of hold things together. We can't hold them toge- together everywhere, but we can't hide our head in the sand. So, Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I want to talk about Donald Trump for a minute. Trump has been, I think, kind of a jerk in these last days. He's not the man he was. He's, and who can blame him? They've tormented him. They've tortured him. He's kind of cracked under the strain, I think, a little bit. He's saying all kinds of crazy things. And, and I'm, I'm not a person who admires him as a person. You know all of this. But I have a question. Let's, let's do an, a thought experiment, all right? I, I have a lot of friends, not a lot of friends, I have some friends who are bigots. They don't like, usually it's blacks, sometimes it's other people, mostly because they've been mugged or, you know, blacks have done something, black people have done something bad and they've uh, extrapolated from that. And I always say to them the same thing, you know, bigots are not wrong about the people they hate. They're wrong about everybody else. <laughs> They're wrong. To, it's, it's, you can hate blacks, you can hate Jews, you can hate whites, you can hate anybody you want, English, French, it doesn't matter. You can hate anybody you want. All of them have been hated through the years. And all of the hatred is right because anytime you take a group of people, even the first 3,000 names in a phone book, you are going to get a group of horrible people because people in, en masse are horrible. Individuals can be good people, but en masse people are generally horrible, all right? So I always say, you know, you should rethink this because you're not, you may not be wrong about black people or Jews or white people, whoever it is you hate, but, but you're wrong about everybody else. You know, there's, there's nothing extraordinary about a group of people doing the wrong thing. Now, I want to try a thought experiment. Join me in this thought experiment. Let us say that everything the left says about Donald Trump is true. Because I sort of believe when people, when the left attacks our politicians, it's not that they're wrong about our politicians, it's they're wrong about their politicians. It's not that Trump is a good person, it's that Hillary and Obama and Biden are awful. That's, that's the way I look at it, all right? So, so let's take Trump as a, just a thought experiment. Just bear with me for a minute. Let's take them at their word. Let's believe that he is a total bad guy. He's a felon. He's the enemy of democracy. He's literally Hitler. Then I want you to explain to me, if all of this is true, why the world was so much more peaceful under him, why the economy was so much better, why prices were lower, why Israel and the Middle East were in better shape. Hey, I, I, you've heard me uh, you know, attack Trump and the, even the results of his administration, the things that he didn't accomplish and all this, but during the first three years of his administration before COVID, Things were better than under Biden. He got a lot of stuff right. A lot of people got stuff right about what was happening. For instance, when they uh, uh, paid ransom to Iran, the $6 billion in ransom, a lot of people, including Donald Trump, got it right. Here's cut six. Biden's ransom payment will be immediately used to stoke violence, bloodshed, and mayhem throughout the Middle East, putting Israel, the United States, and the entire world in very grave peril. Joe Biden just lit a match to the Middle East. Uh, Israel has got to be on alert. 
The news that the deal is moving forward is drawing criticism from both sides of the aisle on Capitol Hill. The way to avoid having hostages taken by Iran is to be strong, firm, and resolute. And to not use carrots in the form of $6 billion, but to use sticks in the form of threats to things that Iran holds dear. See, if Donald Trump is literally Hitler, if all these guys, Tom Cotton, they hate him too. If people were fired at the New York Times for letting Don, Tom Cotton, Senator Tom Cotton, have a, an op-ed printed there. If they're all so bad, why are they closer to the truth? Why did they get this right? I mean, I, like I said, I'm not an admirer of Donald Trump as a human being and his accomplishments weren't long-lasting and all this stuff. But, but if he's an idiot... <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking them at their word now. I'm taking the left at their word. If he's an idiot and even he can do better than you, shouldn't you at least be questioning the basis of your policies? See, ideologues are living in this dream. They are idolaters pretending that this idea they're carrying around, this wooden idea, is in fact the creation of God. They act as if the world were different than it was. And Trump, at least, was a tough guy in this respect. He saw the world as it is, he didn't have that other part that I talked about earlier. He didn't have that ideal inside himself of who he should be. I would prefer a politician who had at least some fragment of that ideal inside, inside himself. But he was a tough guy, tough enough to say, I may think this is the way it's going to go, but if it doesn't go that way, I have to change course because the world will do what it will do. I look at the world, I think we have a responsibility to ourselves, I mean, to keep ourselves safe, to do certain things in the world that cost money we don't have. I, you know, that's, that's what, I, that seems to me the reality of it. I think we should cut the money from entitlements and we should put it in our military. I think our military needs to be stronger. I'm not against humiliating Putin in Ukraine, but we're not going to beat Putin in Ukraine. So I think we should draw it down, you know, over time. I think the Ukrainians are on their own. We have humiliated Putin. We have shown his weakness. We've shown his weakness to his people. I don't think we can spend ourselves into the dirt following that. I didn't think it was wrong to humiliate Putin. I think he's a bad guy and we should have done it. I think in, in Israel, we're giving them stuff. We should be giving them stuff. They are our allies. They are the bastion of freedom in the Middle East. They are a bastion of Western thought in the Middle East, forcing the rest of uh, the Islamic world to deal with them will, civil, will be good for the Islamic world. It will be bad for Iran. We need to break the back of Iran because they're a terrorist country. They're just a terrorist entity, essentially. And, and I think we, it would be a nightmare if Israel was wiped off the face of the earth. And I think we should also make sure that they don't go nuts, you know, just blowing up everything in sight. I think they should go in and exterminate Hamas. We should help them do it. We should nod, keep the bad guys off their backs while they do it. And then that should be the end of it. And if we can get humanitarian aid into the people who are just kids and, you know, regular people living in the Gaza Strip, which is like a basically like a prison, you know, with Hamas as the jailer, I think we should do that, too. I, I think basically none of this is going to change as long as the ideology doesn't change. If Trump is the worst person ever and he was right and you were wrong, there is some, you are even worse than Donald Trump. I keep saying this because my left-wing friends will say to me, well, Trump did this. And I'll say, so you hate Trump. Do you want to be like Trump? Is that what you want to be? Trump did this better. But they can't change. They cannot change. In the grip of an ideology, Right seems wrong, evil seems good, and and white seems black. That's where they are. And that is why we're at this place where evil is rising and where art is dead. So with everyone here at the office loving the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector, you're probably asking yourself, what does this product even do? Well, if you have sunspots, dark spots, discoloration, or dry skin, the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector will help. Those blemishes disappear in front of your very eyes. Kimberly from Youngstown, Ohio says, my appearance has improved so much since using GenuCell. I love all my GenuCell products and my skin looks younger. Now it's your turn to feel like Kimberly, but you need to act fast because this sale is ending very soon. Take advantage of GenuCell's most popular package, which includes the beloved Dark Spot Corrector, this package also includes the GenuCell's classic under-eye treatment. You'll get all of these products for almost 70% off, 7-0. GenuCell is so confident in their products that you can try them for yourself completely risk-free. If you don't see immediate results, you'll get your money back. It's simple. Go to GenuCell.com slash Clavin and start looking years, even decades younger tomorrow. Say hello to the best skin you've ever had at GenuCell.com slash Clavin. That's GenuCell.com slash, how do you spell it? There are no E's. I just make it look easy. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin.
final chapter, your maiden aunt. Um, I want to end by returning to the idea of manhood, because as I say, most of us are not going to have a lot of control over the things that happen in the big picture. We're going to have to act as we act in order to transform the world from first from within and then in the people immediately around us. We're going to have to find, especially men, especially men are going to have to find the extraordinary in themselves no matter what their role is because that is how the future is actually made. And I want to return to this chivalric ideal of knighthood with a hard-boiled, down-to-earth knowledge that the chess game of life is not a game for knights, as Raymond Chandler wrote. This week I did a bonus video where the guy showed me red pill boys like Andrew Tate and others giving dating advice. And the way these bonus videos work is I don't see these videos before they show them to me, and they show them to me on air, and then I kind of talk, and they, if I happen to say anything amusing, they put that in there, and they make the video out of that. But later it occurred to me how <laughs> what these guys were saying wasn't necessarily untrue. It was just being said in an untrue way. In other words, they were presenting this tough guy attitude, this kind of rough, tough, dominating attitude, but really they had been defined by feminism. They were reacting to feminism, and therefore feminism was controlling them. And remember, I was talking about this attractive, tough guy aspect where you talk in a gruff way and you tell the truth, but you have to look beyond that to see, is the guy actually doing the tough thing? Is he really doing the tough thing? And Or is he just reacting? So I, I just want to play one. I'm going to translate this. A lot of the things these guys said about dating were things that your maiden aunt would have told you in the old days about dating. Same thing, except from a different perspective. And it really made me laugh. So I just want to play as many as I can and translate them into your maiden aunt. Now, I don't know who this guy is, but he is giving advice on how to go on a first date. Let's say I'm on a first date. We're approaching our first door. I'll stop and with conviction look in her eyes and say, don't ever open a door around. And it's playful. She knows it's kind of playful, but it's also creating this very strong masculine frame where she is set up now to be in submission. And that's, in my opinion, where every woman actually wants to be. All these women that are going out there saying, I'm a bad bitch and I don't need no man and all this bullshit, they are liars. They're almost the inverse equivalent of the guys that talk shit about women because they just can't get that kind of man. All right. Now, let me let me translate that into your maiden aunt. Right. You go out, you go out on your date and she says, and don't forget to open the door for a lady because that's respectful. You want to be respectful for a lady. It's the same advice. But this guy is framing it in a feminist way. Opening a door for a lady is a sign of respect for her ladyhood. It is a way of saying that man's superior physical strength is at the service of her feminine being, right, which is, that is this essence of chivalry. Sorry to break this to you. That's the essence of chivalry is a man is there to protect and serve a lady because she is, because she is a lady. And if you read the, as I have read almost all the the, um, literature of chivalry, that's almost what it is all about. But he's putting this, ah, we're dominating and, you know, this is dominating. That's what feminists said. That's why feminists used to yell at me when I would open doors for them. They would say, don't you tell me that you're stronger than me. I can open my own doors. You're trying to dominate me. But no, that was untrue. He bought into those lies. And so now he's in a fight with the other half of the human race, the half that is supposed to be the complement to our half. How on earth, no wonder these guys hate marriage. How on earth are you going to find a woman if what you're trying to do in opening a door is what the feminists said you were trying to do. You open a door for a woman because you are living out an ideal that feminists hate, which is the ideal of chivalry. This stuff is so old. Uh, You know, let me play the Andrew Tate one that's cut nine. A woman doesn't even have to like you. She doesn't even have to love you. But if she respects you, she's always going to be around. This is why if I love a woman with all my heart and she goes, I want to leave, the first thing I'm going to say is... Because if I say anything else, she's not going to respect me. Oh, please stay. I'll say, look, I don't want you to leave. I would like you to stay. But if you're going to talk and threaten me, you get the out of my house. I've had women leave me, but there's never, I've never had a woman not respect me. And that's why I can hit up any ex I've ever had. And I know them. Here's how we used to say it in my days. Cut 10. (laughs) 
No woman's worth crawling on the earth because you have to walk like a man. You want to be who you are. It's not a fight. You're not fighting with her. You are simply being what a man is, and hopefully you find a woman who likes that, who will be in love with that. So all I'm saying is these guys have accepted the feminist terms, which is the untough thing to do. They're telling some truths, truths we always knew. Walk like a man, my son. Open, open a door for a lady. These are things we always knew, but they're telling them in feminist terms. They're accepting the fact, the, the feminist idea that we are enemies instead of friends, instead of companions, instead of flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. What I'm saying is you have to live, you have to live by your ideal Knowing that the world is not an ideal, knowing that the world is not an ideal place, the chess game of life is not a game for knights, but that's the way you're going to play it. The other half, you know, the other half of being a tough guy is not just speaking in a tough voice, not just telling the truth, but actually living a truth that is better than the world. That's the beginning of making a world that looks more like you. An actual, that is the actual beginning of changing the world by changing yourself instead of the other way around. There has never been a better time to become a Daily Wire Plus member. We all know the world is losing its mind. Sometimes it can feel like the left has taken over everything. And what place is more important and more impactful than kids' content? We've all seen it. You can hardly find a kid's show that doesn't inject some LGBTQIA plus agenda. And we've all had enough. But at the Daily Wire, we don't just complain about the culture. We fight back. We build alternatives, which is why we launched our new kids' company, Bent Key, an entirely new app with new episodes available every Every Saturday. That's right. It's the return of Saturday morning cartoons. It's all 100% ad-free, but we can't build alternatives without you. And now with your Daily Wire Plus annual membership, you get access to all the great content at the Daily Wire and all the amazing content at Ben Key. If you think that's a fight worth fighting, join us. Get your membership now. We've already invested tens of millions of dollars. There's so much more to do. Stand with us as we build the future we all want to see. You can get Ben Key now at dailywire.com slash subscribe. All right, Clavin Clapbacks. It's not, we lead, uh, not just, uh, well, I won't go into it. I'll wait later. Yeah! <laughs> All right, if you want to comment on the show, agree with me or be wrong, it's Clavin Clapbacks, both Clavin and Clapbacks, spelled with a K at dailywire.com. Clavin Clapbacks at dailywire.com. Please write. I love to hear from you. And we will answer the ones we can. From Brian, we have your 1013 show after the attack by Hamas on Israel, which is really one of the most beautiful commentaries I've heard in a very long time. It has helped me better understand the relationship between Jews and Christianity. I haven't been a very good Christian and wasn't one for most of my life, but this type of content helps to bring me back on track. I, I read that. I know it's flattering to myself, but I got a lot of letters like that, and so I thought I'd pick one out and read one. Uh, from Grant, dear Clavenator, sexy sexagenarian, master of the multiverse. I had the chance to watch Marty after you mentioned it on the show. The film deals with the problem of love, attraction, and ugliness better than we do now by denying the truth. Overall, great recommendation. I like watching movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. What are some good films from that period you'd recommend? So many. I mean, it was the golden age. Uh, if you just watch the Oscar nominees from 1939, you will see some of the greatest movies ever made. Casablanca I mentioned on the show, which I think is the best movie Hollywood ever made. Um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a good example of what I've been talking about on the show of a man who lives the ideal of America in the reality of a very corrupt America. It's a very beautiful movie because people think it's kind of starry-eyed and idealistic, but it's really not. It's really about, I mean, it has some horrific things in it, but it's really about a very corrupt America in which one man decides to live America as it should be. That's what it's about, and that's what I've been talking about on this show. You also shouldn't miss the the great musical, some of the Fred Astaire musicals, Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. And the reason I say that is because only America has ever produced a genre like the musical that is pure joy, that is simply joy expressed. And it says something about America that that joy was there to be turned into art because joy is not something, pure joy like that is not something you find in art very often. But there's too many to list, but maybe one day I'll do a video about that. Uh, from Josh, hello, my bald brother. You spoke on your all access on how you can love people who think things you find appalling. How do you separate those two things? You know, I don't get to read the comments on like YouTube and places like that very much. 
but sometimes I do. I tried to look at some of them after last week's show, and somebody was praising me highly, and at the end of praising me said, uh, I can't understand how you can overlook the sin of homosexuality. And the, the first thing I thought is, I try to look, overlook every sin except my own. I mean, that's really, really, truly what I try to do. I don't overlook crimes. Crimes are different. You can't, when, you, when people are going around hurting people, you know, raping, cheating, um, you know, beating people, you can't overlook that. But you can overlook the things that are in people's hearts, and I do all the time. In fact, I sometimes think I make people uncomfortable because they know I can see who they are, but I like them anyway. And that sometimes makes people, uh, uh, you know, not want to be around me because they'll just think like, ah, you know, that guy uh, is, is seeing too much of me, even though he obviously likes me. I, you know, it's again, going back to another thing I talked about on the show about how bigots are not wrong about the people they hate. They're wrong about themselves and everybody else. The same thing is true. If you find that people have deep flaws or are wrong about certain things or so wrong that you can't even... Uh, imagine how they can be that wrong. You're not wrong about them. You're wrong about yourself because you too are can be that wrong. So things that you think might be that wrong. Things that you believe and hold really dear uh, might be hiding uh, from yourself what you really think and what you really fantasize about. You know, we're, we're just all so uh, messed up and, and full of uh, trouble and pain that once you understand that about yourself, it becomes easier to love other people where they are. Become a member today. We're going into member block. We are leaving those who are non-members behind in a plane of darkness and flames and broken glass, screaming, wailing, gnashing of teeth that is the clavenlessness of the universe. You don't want to be there. You want to become a member today. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code CLAVEN at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. It won't, nothing can stop clavenlessness forever. It's like death. It comes to all of us in the end, except, of course, me. But, but for the rest of you, it will come. But you do get a few extra minutes of clavenly goodness if you become a member. Uh, so go to dailywire.com slash subscribe. Use code CLAVEN at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. Those who are members, come on to Member Block.